Father, thank you for bringing us the word of life. Thank you for bringing us the word of God. You are not silent. You have spoken. And we can know your will and your word. Because of this book, that you have given us a written revelation of yourself. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of my favorite movies of all time is Saving Private Ryan. And as a war movie, it was, it was groundbreaking when it came out in terms of its realism and, and pathos. And when it came out in 1998, there had never been, I don't think, another movie about World, World, World War II like that one was. Uh, but the movie wasn't so much about World War II as it was about the heroes that, that fought in the war. And the movie focused on this army, this infantry unit that was assigned to find this soldier named uh, Private James Ryan. And so after the D-Day invasion, uh, Private James Ryan, it turns out, was the only survivor of three brothers who had been fighting in the war. And this infantry unit was supposed to go and find Private Ryan so that he could be removed from combat duty because the higher-ups had decided that um, his family had already paid uh, enough of a sacrifice. So they were taking him out of combat. So the whole movie is about this infantry, little infantry unit going to find this, this Private Ryan. And, and the, the unit is led by Tom Hanks' character, Captain John Miller. And so they finally find Private Ryan. He's in this small town in France, and he's with his own unit trying to defend this bridge from the Germans. And so Tom Hanks' unit, they don't want to get involved in this defense. They just want to get him and go home. But Ryan won't leave until reinforcements come because his, his unit had been decimated. And so Hanks and, and his company, they join the defense of, of this bridge in this little French town. And they make a plan on, on how they're going to defend when, when the Germans come. And, and, and the plan involves this, uh, a number of retreat points in case they get overrun by the Germans. And, and the last retreat point is on the other side of the bridge that they're trying to defend. If all else fails, they'll retreat back across the bridge. And they placed all these explosives around the bridge. And Tom Hanks would detonate the explosives and separate themselves from the Germans who wouldn't be able to come across at that point. And so at the end of the, the, the climactic battle, at the end of the movie, the Americans put up this really heroic fight against the Germans. But they're completely outmanned and outgunned. The Germans come in with tanks and a large number of infantrymen when they attack. The Americans only have a handful of men and they have light arms. And so there's this gut-wrenching firefight, and the Americans just get decimated by, by the Germans. And so the few who survive the attack end up falling back to that last retreat point on the other side of the bridge. Tom Hanks, his character, Captain John Miller, is, he, he retreats across the bridge, and as he's going back across, he gets shot. And so he drops the detonator for the explosives, the thing that was going to keep them separated from the German attack. 
And these German tanks and these infantrymen are coming across the bridge chasing the Americans. And so Tom Hanks is just sitting there at the edge of the street as they're coming. He's bleeding out. And here they come, the Germans. And all he has left is a pistol in his hand. And so he points it back at this tank that's coming across the bridge and the infantrymen. And he just starts shooting the pistol. Pop, pop. He might as well have had a water pistol in his hand. What was coming at him was way more than a little pistol could handle. Sounds like a little firecracker in the midst of all the explosions. Pop, pop, pop. His last little pop, though, was like a boom. And it was like his bullet was transformed into this enormous bomb, and there was just this explosion. And so and at that point, the, the tank just gets blown up. It's coming across the bridge. And the rest of the infantry, the German infantry, is sent running. And just then... It wasn't his gun that made the boom. It was this American bomber overhead that zoomed by and had dropped a bomb on the Germans. Tom Hanks and his men had no power to stop the enemy advance when they were coming across that bridge. But an overwhelming power from overhead did have the strength to do it. And the truth of the matter is, is that we are not unlike Captain John Miller sitting there popping our gun off across the bridge. We don't have the ability or the strength within ourselves to do what God has called us to do. We just don't. And if we think we do, we're going to find ourselves decimated and bleeding out as the enemy overruns us. You remember that story in Acts 19, the seven sons of Sceva? There's this Jewish chief priest named Sceva, and he had these seven sons, and they had been watching Paul doing all these miracles, presumably including casting out demons. And so these seven sons of Sceva come along, and they say, well, we're going to start casting out demons in the name of Jesus too. So they go out, and they start trying to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus. And they come to this one guy possessed by an evil spirit, and they try to do it, try to cast him out, <clears throat> and the spirit turns to the man, turns to the seven sons of Sceva, who aren't Christians, and, they, and, and he says, I recognize Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? And the Bible says at that point, this demon-possessed man leaps on these seven sons, overpowers them, beats the clothes off of them, so that they have to flee naked and bruised. They were doing things in the name of Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't have the power of Jesus. And when they went out there with their little pea shooter, they got completely overrun. Have you ever stopped to realize that apart from grace, this is what we're all like? We don't have it in us to do what God has called us to do, we don't have it within ourselves. Because what God calls us to do takes supernatural gifting to achieve. It cannot be done apart from the powerful, enabling grace of God. Everything we do, everything we are, is dependent upon grace. I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2. In verses 1 to 13. And I want you to notice right there in verse 1, 
that the very first command is to be strengthened. And the reason that the command is there is because Timothy is not strong enough to do what God has called him to do. What Paul is telling him to do on behalf of God. Timothy's not strong enough to do this. Paul has commanded Timothy, we saw last week, not to be ashamed of the gospel or of Paul, the one who's imprisoned for the gospel. Paul's commanded Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words that he's heard from Paul. He's commanded him to guard the good deposit. Timothy does not have it in him on his own to do any of this. And it may be that perhaps he's, he's beginning to lose heart, and that's why Paul's talking to him the way that he is in this book. So Timothy is going to have to have air power coming in if he's going to continue on in the ministry that God has called him to do. It's going to take strength that he doesn't have in order to accomplish a ministry that he is unable to do on his own. And so Paul's calling on Timothy right there in the first word to be strengthened. That's the banner over the rest of this text. It's to be strengthened for this work. The work that he's calling him to, that he needs strength for, has three aspects, three facets to this work that he needs strengthening for. And so here, here are the three points for the sermon. He's calling him to be strengthened for propagation in verses 1 and 2. Strengthened for suffering in verses 3 through 7. And strengthened for enduring in verses 8 through 13. So strengthened for propagation, verses 1 and 2. Strengthened for suffering, verses 3 to 7. Strengthened for enduring in verses 8 to 13. So everybody look at verse 1. He's calling him to be strengthened for propagation. What do we mean by that? Well, he says, you then, my child, which is, again, Paul's term of endearment for, for Timothy, his spiritual child that he has discipled. He's shown him the ropes in, in ministry. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, notice that the line begins with that word then. You then, my child, which simply means therefore, which in the logic of the passage means because of the work that you have to do in Ephesus, Timothy, and because of Onesiphorus's exemplary, unashamed example. Remember that from last week? Onesiphorus and his household who were faithful in the Lord. Um, they had mercy on Paul, and so Paul prayed for them to have mercy, God to have mercy on Onesiphorus's family. He says, because of that work that you've been called to do, because of that example that you've had in Onesiphorus and his household, Timothy, you be strengthened. But notice that the strengthening is in the passive voice. And this is the, the thing that sort of threw me for a loop as I was studying this. Because he's saying be strengthened, but that it's in the passive voice, which means that what the strength that Timothy needs is not something that he can give to himself. How do you do something that you can't do to yourself? It's something that has to be given to him from outside. It's understood here, because it's in the passive voice, that God's the agent. God has to do the giving of this. The means of the strengthening is the grace that is only to be found in Christ. See that? Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So this grace that comes from God 
the means of which is given through Jesus. What does this mean? Well, ultimately, it means that we're not self-sufficient for anything that God's called us to. We're Christ-sufficient for what God has called us to do. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6 says that not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the question is, how do we get this strengthening? If it's not coming from ourselves, how do we, how do we get it? Well, the answer is that we get it by connecting to the source of the strength. That's how you get it. And the source of the strength here in the text is Jesus, the grace which is in Jesus Christ. We connect to his grace toward us, not by our works, but we enter into that power through faith. Once we enter into that grace, we are sustained, strengthened by it, by continually availing ourselves of the means that God has given us to experience his power. So I think in this way, to be strengthened, it's kind of like what Paul said earlier in chapter 1, to fan into flame the gift of chapter 1, verse 6. It means that we have to continually give ourselves to the means that the Holy Spirit works through to make gospel ministry powerful. So you don't have it within yourself to give your car what it needs to run. You can spit in the tank, but it ain't going anywhere. You can open up your vein and give a blood transfusion to your car, but it's not going anywhere if you do that. It's simply not in you by yourself to strengthen that car to move. You can't make the car run, but you can take it to the place that can make the car run. You can take it to the filling station. That's where the power is. You don't have it within yourself to power up your phone. You can plug the phone in, one end of the little cord, and put the other end in your mouth, sleep all night, wake up in the morning. It will not have electricity in it. You say, well, there's an electric charge in my body. You can't get it into that phone. You don't have it within you to power that thing up. What you can do is bring your phone to the place where you know the power is. You can plug it into the electrical outlet, and, but you can't power it up. You can't strengthen yourself. You have to be strengthened by someone else. But you can take yourself to the one who can strengthen you. And you can avail yourself of the means that he has given you to be strengthened. This is why we sometimes talk about the ordinary means of grace. God has given us means of grace by which we are to be strengthened. Think Acts chapter 2, verses 42. It talks about the Christians there in Jerusalem right after they're all converted. What are they doing in their life together? It says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Did you get that? The apostles' teaching. You know what that is? It's the Bible. Where the Holy Spirit speaks to us. 
is in the apostles' teaching. They're devoting themselves continually to this word. They're devoting themselves continually to fellowship, which means life together in the body. And all that that entails of sinners coming together, trying to walk with Jesus, sometimes offending each other, being reconciled to one another, coming together every week, life together here. Fellowship. To the breaking of bread, I think it's probably talking about the Lord's Supper, which is a means of grace in that as often as we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are constantly pointing one another to the gospel with that supper. And then it says, and to prayer. Calling out to God. So here's the deal. We can't strengthen ourselves, but we can avail ourselves of these ordinary means of grace that God has given to us to be continually devoted to these things by which God intends to strengthen us. If you feel weak and unable to do what God has called you to do, it may be because you're not connected to Christ by faith. You may be like the seven sons of Sceva. You don't know God, and so you're going to get whooped. All right, That could be it. Or it may be that you've neglected to avail yourself of the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace don't have a lot of flash, boom, bam to it, okay? It's showing up here every week. It's fellowshipping with one another. It's listening to the word preached. It's praying together and alone. This is how God strengthens them. This is how he makes us adequate. Why do you need to be strengthened? Look at verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is what I mean by saying that we need to be strengthened for propagation. Verse 2 is talking about the propagation of the gospel. That's the work of gospel ministry. It's the work that every pastor, now remember, Paul's writing to Timothy, the pastor, right? So every pastor is called to this work of propagation. In a broader sense, I think it's the work that every Christian has to give himself to. Why? Because it's nothing less than the propagation of the church through the propagation of the gospel. The Great Commission belongs to to all of us, perhaps led by the pastors, exemplified by what the pastors are doing, but it's something that we're all called to. Two, the church grows and people are added to the number of the saved as we preach the gospel. And and so that's what Paul has in view in in verse 2. He's thinking about the duty that Timothy has to pass the gospel on. But notice there's four generations in view here. The first generation is Paul. He says, what you have heard from me. So first generation, Paul. Second generation is Timothy. Who heard it? Timothy. So Timothy hears from Paul. That's two generations. Timothy then is supposed to entrust that to faithful men. That's a third generation. And those faithful men are supposed to be able to teach others. That's four. This means that normal Christianity is a recreating Christianity. We are supposed to be um, recreating ourselves in the faith. Pastoral ministry according to this text, has a source and a goal. Its source is the apostolic gospel. Who starts this? Paul starts it. 
Its goal is to make disciples of the generations that are coming after us. That is the Christian faith. Timothy is supposed to be reproducing himself in disciples who follow his teaching. Those disciples are to reproduce themselves in the disciples who follow their teaching. So here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Are we as a church, Kenwood Baptist Church, being faithful to this charge? Are we being faithful in the relationships that we have? Think about it as a church corporately, but I want you to think about it in your life individually. Are you thinking about how you can hand on what was handed to you to somebody else who can then hand it on to somebody else? You can't do it by yourself. You don't have anything to hand on if you're not continually devoting yourself to the word. It's what you're handing on. So we have to be strengthened for propagation. This is why when we come here together every week, how do we often pray? We pray for fruitfulness here. Because we know if we go out there and God's not with us, nothing's going to happen. We are completely dependent upon the grace of the Lord for this fruitfulness, for this strength. For propagation. But the second thing is, we have to be strengthened for suffering. Look at verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So, so a main reason that we need strength for propagation of the gospel is right here. Because doing that work necessarily brings opposition. And sometimes that opposition results in our suffering for the sake of of the gospel. But notice two things about this suffering. It's commanded. Suffer as a good soldier, he says. It's a commandment. It's not an option. If you have a choice between unfaithfulness without suffering and faithfulness with suffering, you pick faithfulness with suffering every time. That's God's command to you. It's not that you're looking for trouble. Nobody wants to suffer. It's simply that we want gospel faithfulness and we accept that call no matter what the cost is. The other thing that you notice about this is that the suffering is, is shared. It says share in suffering as a good soldier, which means that you're not alone in this. Of course, as a body, we suffer together, but I think what he has in mind here is that there's somebody who's gone before us in this suffering. And that person is Jesus. Jesus suffered, and that means as his disciple, you have to share in his suffering. If you refuse to follow Jesus when he leads you to suffering, you can't be his disciple. You have to go where he goes. And guess what? That's where he went when he was here. That means that we have to follow him there. And so Paul follows this command up to suffer with three images that illustrate the commitment that he's calling for to suffer. Three metaphors, each one that tells us something about what's required of the one who's called to suffer. And the first metaphor is the soldier, then you have the athlete, then you have the farmer. Look at verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So what's this soldier illustrating here? He, he's illustrating single-mindedness. A soldier doesn't get entangled, it says, in civilian pursuits. That means he doesn't get distracted by things that are not essential to his mission. 
One commentator put it this way, the soldier's goal is to please or to satisfy the wishes of the commander who expects nothing less than complete attention to duty so that the military objectives will be accomplished, end quote. The soldier doesn't get sidetracked by the mundane matters of life, by making a living and buying and selling. When you become a soldier, you've got to set all that stuff aside and single-mindedly focus on whatever the mission is. That's what you do. The only way that you'll be able to embrace suffering for the sake of the gospel is to be single-minded like that, like a soldier is. An athlete, verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, the athlete here is, is illustrating discipline. So the soldier illustrates single-mindedness. The athlete illustrates discipline. In this case, it's the discipline to compete according to the rules. I think Paul's readers probably probably would have been familiar with athletic contests in the ancient world. They had the, the Olympic Games that were in Olympia, Greece. You had the Isthmian Games that were like them in, um, in Corinth. They were familiar with athletic competition. And it's saying that To compete in those competitions, you've got to compete according to the rules, which would mean maybe the rules to the individual contest or the race, whatever it is. It might be the 10 months of training that were necessary to qualify for those games. Who knows what the rules are, but it doesn't matter. The point's clear. The only way to win the prize is to compete according to the rules. Now, how does that, what's the analogy to the Christian faith here? Well, the analogy is this. There is a rule when it comes to following Christ. Jesus told us the rule in Matthew 16. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. One of the rules of following Christ is the willingness to suffer for Christ. If you are unwilling to do this, you cannot be his disciple. You cannot receive the victor's crown if you spurn the victor's cross. So an athlete is disciplined to compete according to the rules. He's going to single-mindedly pursue this even if it takes him through suffering. The farmer is the third image. The farmer illustrates hard work, industriousness. If a farmer, it says in verse 6, it, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So if a farmer refuses to wake up early, put his nose to the grindstone, he's not going to have a crop to harvest. That means that he won't have a share in the reward, as it were. The athlete competes according to the rules so he can have the crown, right? The farmer works hard so that he can have a share in the reward a share in the crops. Lazy people make bad farmers. They also make bad Christians. If you would follow Christ, you have to have a work ethic, a stick-to-itiveness. If you don't have that tolerance for austerity and industry, it's going to be very difficult for you to follow Christ. You may even fall away. And so Paul says in verse 7, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I think Paul wants Timothy and us to consider these analogies carefully. Think over what I'm saying. Paul knows that the Lord will help Timothy and us, I believe, understand all the implications of these metaphors 
for single-mindedness, for discipline, and for hard work. That, that's the point there. You know who one of the most single-minded people I know is? It's Jim Hamilton. Jim Hamilton, for as long as I have known him, is one of the most single-minded, focused, disciplined persons I know in whatever he chooses to do. Once he decides to do a thing, he will go all the way. He, he's like a pit bull with a piece of meat in his mouth. Once his jaws are locked on, you're not going to get him off. I've seen that character trait in a number of different areas of his life. I think you see it in his, his preaching and his publishing. He is dogged in his determination to preach the Bible, to write about the Bible. That's all he wants to do is the Bible. Um, and he's, he's faithful in it. He's single-minded in it. And he's been that way for, for as long as I've known him. I've seen it in other areas. And um, I asked Jill if I could tell this story before uh, church started. But uh, I don't think I've ever told it in here. Did I ever tell you the story of them meeting? Jim and Jill meeting? I've, turned it to, I've told it to several of you before. But... Um, I actually introduced Jim and Jill to one another back in 19, yeah, <laughs> back in 1997. We were all students at Dallas Seminary, and uh, Jim and I were sitting in the cafeteria, and Jill walks by, and she says hello to me because she and I, she was new on campus, and we had uh, already met once. She walked by, she said hello, and so I introduced them to, to one another right there on the spot, and it was like, I've always described it this way. I described it this way at their rehearsal dinner. It was like electricity started popping immediately uh, between the two of them. It was love at first meet. And um, I could see as she walked on and she sat a, a chair near us, but not with us, I could see the wheels were moving in Jim's head. <laughs> he was locked on. Right? <laughs> he, even, even though he didn't want to say so in so many words, it was clear. He was about to pursue her with all the single-mindedness that I've seen him. And so uh, he looks across the table at me, and he, he, kind of, he kind of says, hey, man, why don't we get a group of people together and go to the symphony this Thursday? The seminary used to give out symphony tickets, a, a Dallas symphony. And so uh, he said, let's just go to the symphony this Thursday, get a group of people together. And I said, Jim, if you want to ask her out, just ask her out. <laughs> why, why do I need to get caught up in this ruse? <laughs> He says, uh, he says, no, 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 we'll get some folks together. Are you in? I said, okay, okay. <laughs> so right then, he just leans over to Jill. He, he just met her like a minute ago. He leans over to Jill, and, and he says, hey, a group of us are getting together <laughs> on Thursday. Uh, do you want to go with us? He didn't mention that it was just like me and him, but it's the group. <laughs> she says, yes. And so, <laughs> so then he says, this is not a joke. He says, can I get your phone number for transportation purposes? <laughs> okay, so it, th that was too much for me. I just, I started laughing out loud. <laughs> I'm laughing out loud. So I missed what Jill said back. This is my favorite part of the story. She said, no, but I'll give it to you for other purposes. <laughs> See, this is what happens when you're single-minded. We never had a group date, by the way. This is humorous, but uh, it's an example of single-mindedness, right? 
Single-mindedness means that you're willing to put everything else aside in order to pursue something you think is worthy. You will risk embarrassment. You will risk shame. You will risk rejection. You will do whatever it takes to pursue the prize. And when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to ministry, it means that you will be willing to do risky things. You will risk shame and embarrassment and rejection. In Paul's case, imprisonment. And by the end of this book, death. And you'll do it just to please your master so that you can make much of him by making him known through the propagation of the gospel, through the work that he's given you to do. Here's the thing. If you don't think that the object is worth it, you won't risk anything. You won't suffer anything. You won't be willing to lose anything. You have to believe that having Christ is worth it if it costs you everything and even your life. That's why you have to give yourself to the means of grace, right? The ordinary means of grace focus our minds on the gospel realities and what matters. And it strengthens us to face suffering by filling us with a love for the real thing. That's what makes you willing to suffer. So Paul's saying you've got to be strengthened for propagation. You've got to be strengthened for suffering. The last thing here, verses 8 through 13, he says we've got to be strengthened for enduring. Look at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Isn't that a good word? He's telling him to be strengthened. He's telling him what he's got to have to be equipped for suffering. And then what's he saying? Remember Jesus. You've got to keep Jesus in front of you. It's a command. Because the remembering will be the means by which Timothy is strengthened to endure through suffering. He wants him to remember some specific things about Jesus. Not just generic Jesus. Some specific things about Jesus. The strength that comes from remembering him comes from remembering some specific things. It's, it's that Jesus is raised. It says there, risen from the dead. And notice, maybe you notice this, that it's in the perfect tense. He has been risen from the dead, which means it wasn't just something that happened in the past. It's something that is, is a present reality. It began in the past, but it has ongoing consequences. Jesus was brought back to life at the resurrection. He is alive right now and seated at the right hand of God. Remember Jesus having been raised from the dead. He's not, he's not dead right now. He's alive right now in a body, just like yours and mine, minus sin, minus corruption. He's alive, and he's seated at the right hand of his Father. You remember that. He's not dead. He's alive. You remember it. But then he says he also wants him to remember that Jesus is king. Notice he says here the offspring of David. The phrase is literally the seed of David. That term seed is a word that connects us directly back 
to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12 when God promises to David to raise up a seed or an offspring of David to rule over a kingdom that will last forever. And that seed of David will be God's own son. He's saying, you remember that Jesus is alive and Jesus is in charge. He is the king. He is seated on the throne and your persecutors aren't in charge of you. Jesus is. So you stay faithful to this risen king. But this Jesus, he's raised, he's the king, but he's also apostolic. Because Paul says, he's the Jesus as preached in my gospel. Which is Paul's way of saying, that the Bible from back to front is about Jesus. And this is the Jesus that I preach to you. And the way that I preach Jesus to you is the standard for teaching Jesus. If anyone preaches a Jesus that doesn't match up to that standard, the way I preach them, they're wrong. You preach as it is in my gospel. That's what Paul means by that. And then he says, verse 9, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, But the word of God is not bound. Paul reminds Timothy, it's for this very gospel, King Jesus raised. It's for that gospel that he himself is suffering. But even though Paul is chained up, the gospel isn't chained up. The gospel word is alive and active and can't be squelched by prisons or chains. The word of God has a self-authenticating power that impacts and transforms people even when the vessel delivering that word has become weakened and is imprisoned. You can't contain the word of God. It means that the gospel word is the power of God unto salvation and sometimes it does surprising things. When When I was in college, there was a group of about seven or eight friends who got together one time to listen to a radio program and uh, we're Christian friends. We're all sitting there listening to this radio program. And it was about um, a guy was being interviewed about a book that he had written on lordship salvation, which is this idea that if you're going to receive Jesus as Savior, you also have to receive him as Lord. If you haven't received him as Lord, you haven't received him as, as Savior. And so this guy had made this argument in this book. And we're all just sitting there discussing this back and forth. And it was kind of a, it was kind of a, a cantankerous conversation a little bit because we were complaining a little bit about the church that we were in that didn't seem to teach this. And so we were talking about Bible and theology and just, you know, kind of going at it with each other. I thought it was a conversation among friends, just Christian friends chewing the fat until one of our friends who was there, a girl named Emily, she spoke up. She said, I don't think I'm a Christian if all this is true. I I don't think I've been saved. I've called myself a Christian. I've gone to church, but I've never experienced this kind of change. And so we all just listened to her bear witness of her conviction of sin, her need for repentance and change. We decided to pray for her. We we prayed for her right there. Then we let her pray, and she, we didn't tell her what to pray or what to say. She just spontaneously uttered one of the most moving sinner's prayers I've, I've ever heard. We were just sort of, we weren't trying to evangelize anyone. I don't even know if we had the right spirit in the way we were talking, but God just saved her right there. The word of God is not bound. 
And he saved her right there on the spot. You ever seen stuff like that happen? Because the word of God is not bound, Paul says, verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The key term here is that term endure, which means to maintain a belief or a course of action in the face of opposition. That's why we're saying strengthened for endurance, to keep on keeping on even when you face the opposition. Paul's essentially saying this, the word of God is not bound, and that's why I'm not afraid to suffer. I keep preaching the gospel in the face of opposition, in prison, even the death, because I know that nothing that happens can keep me can keep God from doing what he's going to do through his word. Do you believe that? I love what he says here. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is so fascinating because he says, he says, I'm enduring all things for the elect. I have confidence that God's word is not bound. I have confidence that there's this group of people out there called the elect, which means these people that God has chosen for himself. Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. For Paul, the doctrine of election does not make him less evangelistic, but more evangelistic. Makes him willing to suffer for the gospel that God has chosen a people for himself and that God's word isn't bound. You take the fact that God's word isn't bound and that God has chosen a people for himself, you put those two things together, that motivates evangelism because you know there's going to be fruit. And you know that God is going to work powerfully to accomplish his will and that he aims to use us to achieve it. Listen, if the doctrine of election makes you less evangelistic, you don't get it yet. You are standing against what this doctrine is supposed to do in your life if it makes you less evangelistic. The doctrine of election for Paul filled him with confidence to preach the gospel no matter the opposition he met. It's supposed to do that for us, to fill us with the gumption to speak to other people and not shrink back when others would shrink back. And the reason we can do that is because we know God's going to use his word. And we know he has a people that he's going to save in his will and in his way. Do you believe in election? If you do, like Paul did, the evidence of your belief in election is going to show up in more evangelism and willingness to suffer. Paul says, verse 11, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. This saying is trustworthy, I think, is these last few verses here, which you'll notice in your Bibles are kind of look like they're broken out like poetry. I think Paul is quoting a hymn. He's quoting a hymn, and he's using it to ground everything he said before about endurance. Why does he endure? Well, this, you've got this faithful saying here. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That word endurance there, in the middle of it, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Paul's saying, I endure. Here's this song that we sing in church about endurance, because we know we're going to reign. 
Some people think, if you look at verse 11, if we have died with him, we'll also live with him. That's not about martyrdom. That's about what Paul talks about in Romans 6. Paul talks about what it means to die with Christ in Romans 6. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are joined to Christ's death through faith. If we've died with him, we'll also live with him, which means we'll live for him right now. If we endure, we'll reign with him. That's the future. If we're faithful now, one day he will raise us up. And we will be kings and queens forever in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus. And we will reign with him there. And everything we lost, we, we lose and suffer here will be given back to us then. But if we deny him now in the face of opposition, he will deny us at the judgment. If we deny him, he will deny us. It's what Jesus said, right? Whoever denies me before men, I'll deny before my father who's in heaven. To be denied at the judgment is the ultimate devastation, but it is the cost of a definitive and unwavering denial of Christ. But notice the last hopeful word in verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Some people think that by faithless it means that this is a person who has no faith, they're in settled unbelief, and God's faithful to punish those people. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think the better way to understand this is that if we are unfaithful, we Christians, he remains faithful to us. It's not a settled position of unbelief like Judas. I think it's describing a temporary wavering of unfaithfulness like Peter. And you remember the difference between Peter and Judas. Judas possessed by the devil. Peter Facing Jesus, who knows that Peter's about to deny him. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's what it means. Even, with we are, even when we are faithless, he is faithful. He intercedes for us. And strengthens us to be what we ought to be when we fail. If we have Jesus, we don't have to be afraid of anything. We don't have to be overcome with guilt or shame. We merely have to come to him in repentance and faith. God is not going to deny himself and go back on what he's promised to do for us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He will strengthen us for propagation. He will strengthen us. For suffering, he will strengthen us for enduring. Let me say one last thing here. This is it's not something I can prove to you, but think about where Paul's writing this from. We think Paul's in prison in Rome, writing to Timothy in Ephesus. And he's quoting this hymn, If we died with him, we shall also live with him. Where else do we read that? Paul talked about dying with Christ, living with Christ in Romans 6. Ten years earlier, Paul had written this letter to the Romans. Ten years earlier, he wrote that letter, Romans 6. Ten years later, he's there in prison in Rome. And now he's learned a hymn about dying and rising with Christ. Where do you think he learned that hymn? 
maybe some Christians in Rome come in and sing in Paul's gospel to them. Maybe Onesiphorus often refreshing me. I don't know. But here's a hymn. Seems like it's based on Romans 6. And now Paul's singing it to Timothy. Probably because it was sung to him. And now he's strengthened. That's pretty ordinary, isn't it? And Paul says in Ephesians, we're supposed to sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. That's the strengthening of the fellowship. And that's what God gives us here. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us for the work, for propagation, for suffering, for for endurance. And I pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.